There we go. Ended. Renovation. Good morning. Oh, come on now. Good morning. Yeah, I knew you were here. Pray with me. Father God, thanks so much for being here and uh, joining with us. We thank you that you're present, that we worship you, we sing about you, we sing to you. And Father, now we're going to listen to you. We want to listen to you. So I thank you for my friends that are here, those that are new to Seacoast, those of us that are here every week. We have a chance to worship by listening to our God. So we invite you to speak into our lives and uh, continue to uh, renovate us from the inside out. In Christ's name, amen. 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 There's an insert provided as always with some follow-up Bible study on the back and an outline. If you want to pull that out, it'll help you. But if not, sit back and listen. Matthew chapter 17 today. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Matthew chapter 17. One of my favorite stories in the life of Jesus. We're calling this series Renovation Gospel Stories or Stories from the Life of Christ about grace at work. How does God do His work in us? How does He do His work renovating us, transforming us, changing us as modeled by the way He worked with His own disciples? Matthew chapter 17. You know, I don't know about you, but every building project I've ever seen begins by helping people imagine the finished product. I mean, can you even uh, foresee any circumstances on which you might buy a vacant lot and you're going to build a house, and uh, so you hire a contractor to build your house, and, and the contractor says, uh, okay, and you say, well, how much is this going to cost? He says, well, you know, I can, I can build this house for uh, X number of thousands of dollars, and you go, great, when do you want to start? And so I, he says, I can start right away. And he says, great, what do you need? He says, I just need for you to write me a check. And, and, and you would say to him, well, wait a minute, time out. Before I write you a check, what are you going to build? Well, well, what do you mean, what am I going to build? I mean, you know, I, I own the lot, you bought the lot, I'm going to build you a house. And you say, w- w- would you buy into that or not? Would you write the check to the guy if you saw no picture of what he was going to build? I don't think so. You'd say, well, no, 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 I need a picture. I need to see what I'm going to build. I've been involved in a couple of building programs at the churches I've pastored before, and in every single case, before people would, would, would really buy into the deal and write the check, give their money to build it, they want to know, what are we building? What's going to, what do we get at the end of the game? And I think Jesus kind of understood that, that there's a principle about that that applies to his renovation in our lives as disciples or followers of Jesus. After all, last week, Jesus had just challenged his guys. He had challenged them to to surrender their lives, to give not just their time, energy, money, but he said, you need to, to have life, you've got to surrender your life. If you want to gain life, you've got to give life up. Give it over to me and let me give you life. You know, and, and, and they're buying into that. They're, they're following Jesus. But now he comes out of last week's passage and, and, and he begins to, to do something very, very strange. He only does it one time in all of Scripture. And that is he's going to give his followers a glimpse of the final product. He's going to actually help them imagine if this is your future. And he's going to show them a glimpse of eternity. Father, teach us from this passage. I really pray that you use this passage to help us sharpen, imagine where we are headed as followers of Jesus. I pray that you would use this story, that uh, this great event in the life of Christ with Peter, James, and John 
to open our eyes to get a better, clearer vision of what eternity really looks like and why we should live in response to that today here on planet Earth. So I love you again and I pray that you do that in Christ's name. Amen. So why do we follow Jesus? Jesus is going to give them a glimpse, a glimpse into exactly what it is that is uh, the final product that he's about to do and build in their life. The setting picks up in chapter 16, and if you don't get the setting, you're not going to see, you're not going to understand why the story unfolds the way it does. So I'm going to do three things today. I want to give you the setting first to set the context. And then we want to look at the story itself and kind of unfold the story, enter into the story as Jesus goes up on a, on a mountain with three of his key disciples. And then we're going to come out of the story and talk about, so what? So what's the significance for you and me today trying to be followers of Jesus in the real world today? Got it? The setting, the significance is where we're going to end up after we see the story. The setting begins really in last week's passage that Ryan did a great job of unpacking where Jesus challenges them in verse 25, for example, just to refresh your memory. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But if you want it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, surrenders it to me, to Christ, will find life. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Your soul is eternal. And you don't want to lose that. You don't want to lose eternal life. And he says, what can be more valuable than that? So then Jesus surprises them, I believe, in verse 27. Pick it up. Here's the setting. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of the Father with His angels, and He will then repay every man according to His deeds or judge all of humanity. Truly I say to you, verse 28, and here's the real shocker. There are some of you, some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So the the setting is there. The setting is judgment is coming, verse 26. The King is coming, verse 27. He will judge every person who's alive, verse 27. And then in verse 28, the real shocker, which has caused a lot of theologians to scratch their head over the years, he says, and some of you who are alive right now, standing here today, are not going to, before you die, you're going to see my kingdom. You're going to get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Now, we know that the disciples later died. We know that the kingdom of God did not literally come. So what was Jesus referring to? I think it's a direct setup to today's story. So you've got to enter into the mindset of the disciples. You've got to imagine that you're Peter, you're James, you're John. You're with Jesus. You're listening to Him. You've been challenged to follow Him. You're Peter and you've had a good day just a few days earlier when Jesus asked, so who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. Bingo. And Jesus said, that is so special, Peter. You are blessed by God to know that. So Peter has had a a great day. Then Peter turns right around and Jesus says, but you know, I still have to suffer at the hands of men and be crucified and and, and that's coming too. So you guys need to be aware of that. And Peter says, no way, no way will we let that happen. So he goes from being the mouthpiece of God the Father, declaring who Jesus is, to having Jesus say, Peter, get thee behind me, who? Satan, last week. You know, he says, you know, because what you just said is not from God, it's from the enemy. 
So he goes from being a mouthpiece of God to a mouthpiece of Satan, the enemy. And, and it's the same Peter. You know, sometimes he gets it right, sometimes he gets it wrong. That's why I love Peter. That's why the renovation series is studying all the disciples, but mostly zeroing in on Peter because I think he's the most like us. Because some days I get it right, other days I really mess it up. And, and we're going to see how Jesus has grace and love toward me on my good days and my bad. But Peter has, has understood who Jesus is. Peter has listened and bought into the idea that he needs to surrender his life to Jesus. Peter is listening and then in verse 28 he even says, some of you are not going to die until you see the king and the kingdom coming. And all of a sudden the anticipation is there. They've been seeing Jesus do miracles. So now we fast forward a mere six days later. Okay, Six days later, verse 1, chapter 17. Listen to the Word of God. Follow with me if you have your Bible. Six days later then, Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John, His brother. And He led the three of them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now if you read the same story in Luke and Mark, I'll fill in some of the details. Because Luke tells us that Jesus said to them, let's go up on the mountain to pray. So Jesus says the purpose first is this is a prayer meeting. And He hand selects His three key leaders. Peter, James, and John. Every time in the life of Christ that he ever escapes and takes a little subset of his 12 disciples, he always takes the same three. It's always Peter, James, and John. Jesus wasn't fair. Jesus had a strategy. Okay? Jesus was just. He's holy, but that doesn't mean he, what he did felt fair to all the disciples. It's like, hey, Jesus, you know, when's my turn to get away with you privately? But Peter, James, and John go with him up on the mountain, probably Mount Hermon, which is near because he'd been down at Caesarea by the Sea of Galilee. Now he heads up the mountain and Luke tells us, let's go off and pray. So Jesus is doing one of his private small prayer meetings with his three key leaders. He also tells us what they do. As they're praying, they fall how? Asleep. They fall asleep, Luke says. So just like later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, they're going to do it again, okay? Those guys are terrible at prayer meetings. You know, they fall asleep. They're just like me. I fall asleep when we pray. Sometimes Becky and I pray before we go to sleep. And, you know, she's more holy than I am because she starts praying. And she prays and prays and prays. And then she hears me snore. And then she elbows me and wakes me up out of my deep expressions she thought it was snoring i think it's a prayer language but anyway you know she wakes me up and then i pray you know but but they're like me so peter james and john fall asleep they fall asleep and here's what happens while they're sleeping pick it up now verse two and jesus as they're praying and the other guys fall asleep jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone bright as the sun and his garments became like white as white as light and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with Jesus. Now, you've got to picture this because as they slip off uh, in the story here, they wake up from their falling asleep in prayer, and, and Jesus no longer looks like a mere human being. It just says his face was as bright as the sun. It says his, his clothing was transfigured and glowed. This is Jesus in his glorified state. This is his full-on, godly, glorified state, uh, the eternal state that Jesus would have later. And, and they see him, and they see two other characters that they later learn are Moses and Elijah, and they're talking to Jesus. So the three of them are, are in their glorified bodies, 
uh, shining as bright as the sun. Uh, it's hard for us to picture beyond that, but just imagine that. And they're having a conversation. Now, we don't know how long they listen and just let the conversation go. Because the scriptures in Mark say that, and as Moses and Elijah were leaving, so Moses and Elijah begin to leave. So I've got to fill in the story for you. As they're starting to leave, Peter sees them leaving, and that picks up the action in verse 4. So as they are leaving, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. In other words, Lord, don't let them leave. That's what he's saying. It's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And, and I'll feel, you know, so Jesus, Peter, man, he's starting to gather the wood, you know, because the tabernacles were, were uh, structures that they would build. Picture tents made out of branches that the Jews would often go out into the wilderness and celebrate the, beef, the, 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 the Feast of Booths, it was called. But they would build these small huts, or they called them tabernacles, in which they would stay. Uh, and, and it was kind of a reminder uh, of, of the promises of God and the coming kingdom. And we don't have time to go into the details, but Peter sees, wow, the kingdom of God is kicking off. I, I don't want Moses and Elijah to leave. So as they're getting ready to leave, Peter says, wait a minute, Lord, it's, it's good for us all to be here. I'm going to build three little huts, one for you, one for him. And it's interesting, the passage says that while he is still speaking, God the Father interrupts. Now pick it up with me. Look at your Bibles. Verse 5. It says, and while Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, Peter. And you can kind of read between the lines there. Because what God the Father does is Peter just goes off announcing, i got a plan, let's do this, let's do that. And the Father has to interrupt Peter. It says, while he's still speaking, the Father, with a voice, interrupts Peter's talking. It says, Peter, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. This is the Son of God that you're, you're in the presence of. Shut up and listen to Him. That's kind of what it says in the Greek. Okay? He shuts him up, so Peter goes quiet. He doesn't just go quiet, but when God speaks from a glowing cloud, guess what? It scares him to death. He and the other two fall on their face. Pick it up. Verse 6. So when the disciples heard this, they fell on their face, face down on the ground, and were terrified. And then Jesus came to them, touched them, and said, get up. Do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone, back in his normal body. And then as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Look, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So he tells the three guys, Don't tell anyone what just happened until after my resurrection. And the disciples were asking Jesus, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, why would they ask Jesus that? Let me take you back to the Old Testament. The last of the prophets of the Old Testament, hundreds of years earlier, spoke about the coming kingdom and the coming king and the coming Messiah. Which was the last of the prophets, you know? Answer? Answer? Malachi, right? You knew that, 
Okay? So Malachi was the last of the prophets. The last chapter of Malachi is chapter 4. The last verses of the last chapter of the last prophet is chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And we'll come to the verses later, but to show them to you later. But in essence, what those verses said was that in the final times, when, when the Messiah comes, he will be preceded by uh, a great prophet like Elijah will come and prepare the way for him. And, uh, and Jesus, so, there, you know, th- so they were there, Elijah came, and then he left. So it makes sense that Peter and, and the other guys would say, okay, wait a minute, now let's kind of process this. You know, because we know Malachi says that first the Messiah is going to come and, and then Elijah is going to kind of come and prepare the way for him. And man, we were all set up. There's Messiah, there's Elijah, even throw in Moses for a bonus. And, and, and why, why did they leave? And, and, and if Elijah left, what's going on? Because we know that everyone teaches that before the kingdom comes, Elijah comes. So what's up with that, Jesus? So Jesus explains it in verse 11. He says, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they wished. And so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands as well. And then the disciples understood that Jesus had spoken to them about John the Baptist. In other words, what Jesus was teaching them that they understood was that, you know, it's not that literally Elijah the prophet himself is going to come again. It's literally a, a prophet like Elijah in the spirit of Elijah to announce the coming Messiah will come. And Jesus said, guess what? John the Baptist was this Elijah. And you know something? They didn't honor him. They didn't accept his message. In fact, they, the religious leaders did to him whatever they wanted to. And in fact, at this point in time, what's already happened, John the Baptist has been what? Beheaded. He's been beheaded. So, whoa. Okay. So all of a sudden they're thinking, now this just rattled my cage even more. So somehow the, the Messiah's here and Elijah's coming, but... So John the Baptist was him, and that's how he ended up beheaded for, you know, for saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Remember that? So John the Baptist had already come in the spirit of Elijah to introduce Messiah. So that's already happened, Jesus said. But then Jesus adds, and by the way, they're going to do that. They're going to treat me bad too. They're gonna, in other words, he's referring to his own crucifixion. So what are the lessons of this story? I mean, it's a wild story. I think in essence, the big idea of the story is this, that they go on a mountaintop and what Jesus gives them is a glimpse of the kingdom. He gives them a glimpse of the coming kingdom of Christ. He gives them a glimpse of eternity and what's ahead for everyone who follows Jesus. What's the significance? I think the significance is this. As Jesus renovates our lives, one of the most foundational things we need to understand is what is ahead at the end of the game. Where is, it, where is it going to all end up if you choose to buy into Jesus? You place your faith in Jesus and receive His grace and His mercy, His forgiveness. What's, a, what's ahead for you? And, and what's the end game, you might say? Because if we get a clear vision of where it's going to all end up, it helps us know how to live with wisdom in the here and now. Another way to say it would be this. 
that to get a clear vision of eternity helps clarify how I should live right now on planet Earth. And so what does Jesus show them in this story? I think there's four great truths that apply to me. Here we go. Hopefully they apply to you as well. Number one, Jesus says, look, imagine where you're headed. Imagine life after death because you are going to be in glorified eternal bodies. Imagine if you um, had a glimpse into heaven, what people look like in heaven. Imagine if you actually saw that. How would that change the way you live right now? I think for me it would be, it'd be radical. And, and in essence, this story is designed to give us that glimpse as it did literally for Peter, James, and John that day. What did they see? What they saw was a glorified eternal body of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. What do we learn about this from other passages in Scripture? Let me give you one on the screen real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, pick it up in verse 42 as I read, follow along. This is your future if you have trusted Christ. So also is the resurrection of the dead. In other words, when you die right now, your spirit, your soul leaves your body and goes to be with God. Got that? Okay, in heaven with God. If you have placed faith in Christ. If not, Scripture describes a a horrendous place called hell that your spirit or soul goes to. But in the future, because Christ died on the cross, it says that he not only redeems our soul, he will eventually redeem and resurrect our body. So you're going to get a new body to go with your soul. Got it? And here's what it says. Here's how it describes it. Today, your body is sown, meaning into the ground, buried. It's buried a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable. It is buried or sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body like everyone else has, but it will be raised a spiritual body. If you have a natural body, there is also a spiritual body coming. That's the promise of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I love those contrasts. From perishable to imperishable, dishonored to glory, weak to powerful, natural to spiritual. And he's not saying here, by the way, that you become like an angel. Uh, one of the most common misunderstandings of people is the, they, they portray people after they die of sprouting wings and becoming angels. You, know? uh, you do not become angels. Angels are spiritual beings that, that, you know, that, that, that serve God, uh, just as demons are spiritual beings that serve Satan. Um, and uh, you do not become an angel, and angels don't become people. You, you are a person created with an eternal soul, and when you die, that soul goes to be with the Lord. You never stop, you never really stop living. You change from living on planet Earth to being in the presence of Christ. But then someday, for eternity, you actually are going to have a spiritual body very much like you saw in this story or they saw with Moses and Elijah and Jesus. That's your future. Know it. There's nothing wrong with our culture's... um, Well, let me say it this way. There's nothing wrong with seeking to care for your body. It's a gift from God. God wants us to take care of it. Um, But one of the things that you don't want to buy into as a follower of Jesus is the illusion that your body is eternal. Or the illusion that your body is where the action is. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, no matter how well you care for your body, it is a perishable body. You know, when you go to the 
to the store and you buy something and it's stamped, expires on blah, 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 because it's a perishable item, you know, you should have a big stamp on your forehead that says, boom, perishable. Okay? And if God was so kind to tell us when we're going to check out, it could even say, will expire on. (laughs) Wouldn't that be wild, okay? Wouldn't that be wild if maybe on, on the back of your head where you can't see it every morning, it says, expires on a certain date, okay? Uh, I'm glad God doesn't put the stamp on me, but I've got to live with the awareness that's, the, that's my reality. And even if you're a young buck, like someone I'm looking at right here, you know, who still has his hair, you will lose it, okay? If not the hair, it's going to change, you know? So all of us are going to age. Our bodies are like that. But the cool thing is that we have this image of, wow, imagine that if you put your faith in Christ, you will have an eternal, perfect, perfected, glorified body in which you'll live in forever as part of your eternal life. How cool is that? I've only been with a handful of people when they actually died. I was with my father um, when he um, suffered a, uh, was probably a a heart attack of some sort, but he was in a coma for several days, never woke up. We were able to pray with him, be with him, but never had those conversations with my dad. My mom was a different story. About two years ago, my mom, uh, mom had cancer, uh, began to take her life, began to take over her body. She went on dialysis. They had to take her off of dialysis. And if you know anything about that, when you go on hospice off dialysis, um, they pretty much, uh, the doctors pretty much tell you that, you know, without the function of the, of the kidney there, you have, you're on a seven-day clock. The doctors say, well, how long can she live? And they literally said, uh, no more than seven days. And sure enough, it was right, right about day seven that, that my mom actually passed away. But we spent that week with her, just loving on her, uh, singing with her. She had a strong faith in Jesus. She knew she was headed for heaven. But even then, it was hard. Death is ugly and hard. And especially when you're dying from something that's just kind of sucking the life out of your body. So as mom got weaker and weaker and weaker to the point that she couldn't eat, couldn't drink, um, as we were with her, praying with her, singing, she was surrounded by all of her kids. She was surrounded by, I think, nine of her 11 grandchildren. Uh, It was sweet, but it was also frightening for my mom. I'll never forget about a day before she died. Mom um, was just weeping. And I wanted to encourage her. And I said, Mom, what's, what's going on? And she said, you don't understand. I said, what do you, what, what do you mean, Mom? What, what's going on? And she said, Dale, she says, I'm about to lose everything. I'm about to lose everything. And I said, oh, Mom. I said, don't buy that lie. I said, you are about to gain everything. You're not about to lose anything. In fact, you're about to get back way more than you ever have experienced. You're about to be the youngest, healthiest, pain-free, free of sin, free of death, free of suffering, free of illness forever and ever and ever. See, Mom, you're about ready to get it. You're about ready to gain everything. You're about ready to gain life, not lose life. So you've got you've to remember that. And I read some of these scriptures to her. To remind her of what she was about to gain. 
And hopefully that brought some comfort as she slipped uh, into a coma and finally passed, passed away. But you know, if we live as if this life on this planet, in this body, is where the action is, we will make bad, dumb choices in how we live our lives. Jesus gave a glimpse of the future for every one of us in this story. Imagine an eternal new body. Number two, imagine a kingdom that is delayed but still coming. That is our eternal home. So you're going to have not just a new body, you're going to be a part of a, of a new kingdom called the kingdom of God. See, this is what Peter was so excited about. Because when Peter heard Jesus six days earlier in verse 28, chapter 16, say, Truly I say to you, there are some of you who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What he pictured was he thought Jesus was saying, we're going to launch my kingdom while you're still alive. And again, the passage that Peter undoubtedly was thinking about is this one. I'll give it to you on the screen. Malachi 4, 5 and 6. Read it this week. I really encourage you on the back of the uh, sermon notes every week uh, because I think you learn more during the week spending time with God than you do spending an, an hour with Dale, all right? So read these devotionals that I give you every week or better yet, sign up. We'll email them to you. They're called Daily Encounters. This is one verse you'll read. Malachi had said this, Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is when Christ comes as the uh, judge of the world and to establish his kingdom. So Peter really was not way off track when he, when he said, Hey, hey, hey don't, don't let Elijah leave. I'll build a home for him. You know, let's build a hut for Elijah and Moses and you, Jesus. Because Peter thought the kingdom is kicking off. And so would you. Six days earlier, Jesus said, some of you aren't going to die until you see the kingdom. And all of a sudden, whoa, he wakes up from sleeping through a prayer meeting, and there's Jesus glowing like the sun, and Moses and Elijah are down walking, talking with him. You would have thought the same thing. So Peter really wasn't way off base in thinking this could be the beginning of the kingdom. Now, I'm a diagram guy, so maybe this can help you put all this in sequence. What Peter thought was this diagram. In other words, that it's time for the Messiah to bring about peace on earth, put an end to all the enemies of God, establish his kingdom on the planet. That's what he thought. But what he was forgetting was what Jesus had been teaching them. One chapter earlier, Jesus said this, but the Son of Man must first suffer and die at the hands of his enemies. That's the cross. He says, Peter, I've got to go to the cross first to pay the price for your sin and the sins of the world. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And then I'm going to ascend back up to heaven to be with my, heavenly, to be with my Father. So Jesus was telling them, I'm here now. I'm going to die for your sins, raise from the dead. I'm going to ascend back to heaven. And then remember Jesus also in chapter 16, he said, hey, Peter, great. You're the Christ, son of the living God. Great statement. Peter, you got that one right? Upon this Truth, I will build my church. So see, Jesus was saying, I'm going to build something called the church. That was a whole new idea. You don't find the word church ever mentioned in the Old Testament. But Jesus is saying, yeah, my kingdom's coming, Peter. But remember, I've got to die first for your sins. I've got to be the suffering Savior before I become the coming King. And in the meantime, I'm going to build a global church. We're going to, we're going to take the kingdom of God global. 
We're going to go into all the world. We're going to teach the gospel to every people and tribe and nation. And I'm going to build a church that's not just a Jewish church. It's going to be a global church that's available to everyone who will put their faith in Christ. And that's what Jesus is doing right now. We are living in this time period today as followers of Christ. And then Jesus said, and by the way, I am coming back. Now, jump to Matthew chapter 25 and you'll see Jesus describe this. Here it is. He says, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne that is on the earth. Then the King will say to those on His right, He separates believers and unbelievers from His right and His left, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Jesus, back to the diagram, is going to come and establish his kingdom. But Jesus is saying, it's not now, Peter, but I'm giving you a taste of the kingdom. I'm I'm showing you what it's going to be like. You're going to be with other believers in their glorified bodies like Elijah and Moses and me, and, and, and we'll be together and we will establish my kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. Uh, if you read through the rest of Scripture, I, I think it's a thousand year reign of Christ that happens when he returns his second time, not his first time. But the disciples didn't understand two comings of the Messiah. They kind of, because many of the scriptures and prophecies of the coming Messiah kind of take what happens at his first coming when he dies for our sins and what he does in his second coming when he puts an end to all evil and the lion lays down with the lamb and everything else and all this, when there's peace on the planet and Christ reigns forever and ever on his throne, that they overlook the fact that in between he's going to build this thing called the church. But Jesus is coming back. He will establish his kingdom. And what we don't have time to talk about today, but if you want to go back to the series we did last fall on uh, 2 Peter, on the 2 Peter series, we did a whole, did two weeks of sermons on eternity. And I, and I, and I unpacked the rest of this diagram where there's another conflict that occurs at the end of the kingdom. There's a final judgment. And then God creates a new heaven and a new earth for his people to dwell in forever and ever. And he creates this thing, or he has a place called the lake of fire, which is the eternal destiny of those who do not trust Christ. Men and women, this is what Jesus is basically teaching his disciples, piece by piece. Now with hindsight, we can look back and kind of put it all together. So the big lesson is, look, there's a great new kingdom coming, but not now, Peter, not now. But you are going to be part of it. And so will you and I. Third big lesson of the morning. So if it's not coming now, what do I need to be ready for? And that's where as Jesus takes them off the mountain, look again at what he says in verse 11, okay? 1711. And Jesus, they come down walking off the mountain. And his disciples asked, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Because this, at this point, Peter's confused. The disciples are confused because, okay, Elijah's got to come, then the kingdom starts. Elijah came, kingdom didn't start, like a false start. So what's going on? So Jesus answers and says, Elijah is coming to restore all things, but I say to you, Elijah already came. They just didn't recognize him because he was John the Baptist. And they did whatever they wanted to to him. They 
They, they tortured him. They executed him, beheaded him. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. In other words, these things have to happen first. What's the principle? Here it is. Remember that suffering always precedes glory. Say that again. Suffering precedes glory. So the lesson for us as followers of Jesus is at this period in time, we need to be ready to suffer for our faith. That will happen. So persevere and live with an eye on eternity. That's the big lesson. Now, where else is this unpacked later in Scripture? Here's my favorite passage on it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Now, I'm not going to give you this one on the screen because I want you to look at it. So take your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 4. I want you to mark this up. Always carry a pen with you to church here at Seacoast, okay? If you're on your iPad, figure out how to highlight. If not, get an old school Bible. Here we go. Chapter 4, verse 16. He says this, therefore, we do not lose heart. He's talking about the fact that sometimes we suffer. Therefore, we don't lose heart, but though our outer man, our body, is decaying, yet our inner man, our soul, is being renewed, being renovated day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, we don't focus on the things we can see. We don't focus on the things of this life. But instead, we focus on the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary or temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. So see, what he's saying is, you know, yeah, life at times will be hard. At times we will have momentary light affliction. He says, compared to the glory and the, and, the, and the eternity that's ahead for us, whatever we suffer now on planet Earth is small stuff compared to an eternity of awesome life in new bodies, in a new home, in a new kingdom forever and ever. That makes sense? So where are you going to focus? And, and the warning is don't focus on the earthly stuff now. And that's so tempting because I can see the earthly stuff. If I focus on what I can see, then, you know, it's my, it's my income, it's my money, it's my possessions, it's my home, my car, it's my vacation that I want to take, it's this and that. You know, it's, it's all this good stuff that feels pretty good now because, you know, it, it's, all, it's all good. And, 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 and much of it, hopefully, is not sinful, but it's good. But he says, man, don't, don't make that what you live for. That'll disappoint you. Live for things that have eternal value. Live for people who have eternal souls. Live for the kingdom of God and getting the gospel out to people that can experience the joy of receiving eternal life like we've been blessed to have as a gift from God. We don't earn it. It's given to us as a gift. Man, the joy of using life now on planet Earth because we are a part of an eternal kingdom. He says, that's what I get excited about. When I get excited about that, Jesus says, I'm giving you a little glimpse of it, guys. I'm going to let you actually see what it's going to look like to be hanging out with people in glorified bodies, like Elijah and Moses and me. That's your future. So persevere through whatever life dishes out right now and live for eternity. Why does he say that 
there's an incredible glory waiting for us. Well, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. So what's our therefore? 2 Corinthians 5 says, therefore, how do I live? We have also as our ambition, verse 9, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Christ. For we must all appear someday before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a phrase that's not referring to judging whether you get into heaven. It's a phrase, it's called the bima, is the Greek word. The bima judgment, where Christ uh, has all of his followers already in heaven. And he dispenses rewards to them for the way that they live on planet earth. He says in verse 10, he says, so that each may, re, may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So the awesome fact is, look, we live for eternity. We lay up treasure in heaven to quote Jesus. Remember earlier in, the, in Matthew uh, 6 where Jesus says, hey, don't be a fool. That's Jesus' word, not mine. Don't be foolish. Don't lay up treasure on earth where it's going to rust and be left behind or get stolen or destroyed lay your treasure up in heaven where it's eternal and makes a difference so live use your time use your money use your influence use your relationships always with a view toward how can i change someone's forever to think that you have a chance to move someone one step closer to jesus christ See, we're talking a lot about going and doing a cleanup day at Ocean Knoll or Sunset High School or some of the other things we'll be doing this year to love Encinitas. Why do we do that? We don't do it just because we like pretty elementary schools. We don't do it just because we want to have a clean city in Encinitas because that's our home. We do it because we want to show the love of Christ in a very tangible way to people in a way that will surprise them. Because I can tell you right now, never in their history that I know of, has a church ever just said, hey, can we just come and help you all? We just want to come love on your school. Churches don't do that. So we want to surprise them with the love of Christ, offer to be servants, build friendships, relationships, do it alongside of them, not just by ourselves. So if you aren't signed up right now, get signed up for May 30th. And, and let's just flood that school with the atmosphere and the love of Christ. And, and let's do it today, making lunches for the sheriff's department. And let's do it in other ways as we seek to love on the city in the name of Jesus. You do good works to create goodwill that you might be able someday to share good news. And that's what this is all about when we talk about love in Sanitas. Last but not least, Jesus ends the story with one other truth. And that is it says that they fell on their face. Terrified that they were in the presence of God. And Jesus. It says he went over and. Said do not fear. It says he touched them. And said do not fear. And it says they lifted their eyes. And they saw Jesus back in his regular body. All alone. And they got up and said now let's go. And they walked off the mountain to debrief. I love that image that when they are terrified, realizing, you know, this has not been a good day for us. We fell asleep in Jesus' prayer meeting. That's not good. And then we start announcing what we should do. And God the Father had to speak out of heaven and tell us to be quiet. 
That's not good. But when you're having your worst day of the year, if you've put your faith in Christ and His grace, He just touches you and says, don't be afraid. Get up. Let's go, Let's go do life together. I love the verse in Romans 8.1 that says this, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I hope you have that one memorized. That's your reality if your faith is in Christ. So why did Jesus do this little trip up the mountain? Why did he do this? I think he wanted us to get a glimpse of our eternity, to get a glimpse of what's the finished product when we talk about renovation. You in an eternal, forever and ever new glorified body. You as part of an eternal, forever and ever kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth. You, while on earth now, having purpose to your life so that we're able to persevere the tough days because we know that there's eternal things that we care about more. And last of all, you knowing that you never have to fear on your bad days because the touch of Jesus is the touch of grace. It's the touch of love. It's the touch of forgiveness. And it's always yours. Amen? Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the incredible touch of Christ and his grace. Thank you for the kingdom that you've made us a part of. Fathers, we turn our hearts back to worship now. I would invite our friends to uh, take a moment and prepare to share communion together during our worship time. But before we do, um, would you just pray with me and pause to say, Lord Jesus, wow, thank you for this glimpse of my future. Thank you that someday as I face death, I do it with no fear. And every day as I live my life, I can live it with an eternal perspective of what's coming. Thank you for an eternity that is awesome and glorious. And I pray that um, as we now approach the Lord's table in a few minutes and Take a little piece of bread that reminds us of the body of Jesus broken for us and take a little cup that reminds us of the blood of Jesus shed for us. That we do it in remembrance and with deep affection for Jesus. So bless this worship time to your honor. Use it to help us rededicate ourselves to living for eternal things. In Christ's name, amen. Today we're going to, as we often do here, but if you're new, uh, take a few minutes to pray, spend some time with God, just listen. If you want to sing, you can. If you want to just pray, you can. But prepare your heart, confess any sin that might be lingering there. Be reminded of the grace of God and what Christ did for you on the cross. Then when you're ready, slip to one of the six tables around the room and take the bread, take the cup, slip off by yourself. And just spend a little time with God and eat and drink in remembrance of Christ.